Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to 4 o'clock and it's time, as Chris said, for Tuesday Home Time. And thank you, Chris, for another two hours of great voices. Today, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees to be awarded the inaugural Jerusalem Peace Prize here in Melbourne next month. I'll be speaking to Stuart. The International People's Tribunal Judgment on the Philippines. I'll explain in a few moments' time why I'm replaying that. Part two of my interview with Dr Tim Anderson back from the Middle East. Dr Peter Wigg from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War why nuclear deterrents don't work, and marches for peace in both Jeju Island in South Korea and Okinawa in Japan. But first, Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. And I'll just preface this by saying you will hear some little bips through this interview talk because um, we had a very busy morning here at 3CR with filming and studios were booked out, so I had to do the, the the recording in the phone booth. And being an old recording booth, we haven't got rid of the bips out of that one. So persevere. Kevin's well I'm with Jane Lister when this international panel on climate change report concluded that we had to move urgently to a fossil-free energy world if we were to reduce the inevitable consequences of the fossils, like the total destruction of the Barrier Reef, along with the rest of the planet. But our, our fossils declared true Blue Aussie was not a part of the world and thus isn't affected. Uh, this international uh, uh, whatever... Big Supremo scuttled them more lash, son asked his favourite probing shock jock interviewer, Alan Court in the Johns. Uh, uh, what are their credentials to make these statements? Uh, Big Supremo, they are scientists who base their ludicrously ridiculous assumptions on science. <laughs> so, so what would they know? <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. At this, they had a big, big laugh, and Scuttle then told Alan, and this is a direct quote, the report does not provide recommendations to True Blue Aussie or True Blue Aussie's program, but rather is dealing with the global program. Indicating Scuttle then knows True Blue Aussie is not part of global, and obviously the Barrier Reef is nowhere near True Blue Aussie. Not that we should worry anyway, because Scuttle then also reiterated his recorded message that True Blue Aussie will meet its Paris commitments in a canter. So given his horsey analogy, perhaps he could flash his climate change policy. Well, let's qualify that. If there is such a thing as climate change, climate change policy on the Sydney Opera House, although unless it was blown up about a trillion times, we wouldn't be able to see it. And to prove how basing these scare tactics on science is clearly unscientific, the great international coal beer moths operating in and out of True Blue Aussie base their knowledge on the International Energy Property 
Agency, which says they can safely keep increasing their coal exports around the globe, to which True Blue Aussie does not belong. And on that international panel report, readers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin were saved by the caring editorial staff from being terrified by these warnings. And the only mention of the report turned up back in the finance pages with an extremely objective and thoughtful column by Lord Rupert's economic guru, Terry Pukan who described the report as scaremongering blackmail, direct quote, deployed by the IPCC climate hysterics of the grubby coalition of theological climate extremists and greedy money-chasing renewable energy rent-seekers, carpetbaggers and main chances all. Told you it was objective and thoughtful, well profound, designed, Terry raved on, to send energy prices through the roof or into the CO2 atmosphere or something, showing Terry shares Lord Rupert's concern for the common person, given that with fossil energy costs so, so low, thanks to the great fossil power companies whose greatest concern is keeping prices low. Unlike when these utilities were in the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector. One of those coal behemoths, Glen Care for the Environment, has been forced to take the True Blue Aussie Tax Department to the High Court over the grossly unjust retention by the tax office of papers which just may indicate how Glen Care for the Environment also cares about meeting its legal tax obligations, as all of these great good corporate citizens assure us they meet all their legal tax obligations. In this case, that Paradise Papers leak, which suggested some of the legal tax obligations were balanced by a few illegal tax non-obligations. Poor Glenn Care for the Environment claiming legal privilege over papers involving a Bermudan law firm, which seemed to pick up a hell of a lot of work for the great corporations. In other words, asking the High Court to make sure the tax office can't use the evidence. Not that we'd suggest there is any evidence, given it clearly meets its legal tax obligations. And the atmosphere, the irresponsible threats, get even worse, because the tax office is looking at whether it can circumvent legal privilege by investigating advice given by the big, big four international accounting corporations, allowing their clients to meet their legal tax obligations as if they'd give bad advice, and the clients must definitely feel very privileged. But speaking of reports, sorry I must complain again, after last week complaining that US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, among others, is presaging the end of satire, almost unconsciously, which for him is pretty normal and appropriate, although the word normal and Donald, no, no, but imagine if in satire we said the FBI has investigated alleged sexual crimes by a Supreme Court nominee named Brute, no, no, that's not right. So, sorry, Brett. Brett Kavanaugh, I didn't. And exonerated Kavanaugh, I didn't, without interviewing those who say he did. Without interviewing any of the accusers, alleged victims, nor corroborating witnesses about drinking and other relevant habits and details from the time the allegations occurred. Nor interviewed the accused, but declared there was no case to answer based on the evidence it didn't collect. We'd probably get a few little laughs, but no, foiled again. It's getting out of control. Back here, 
The state-caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, some guy whose name most people can't remember, promised he would build a 450-car multi-storey car park at Frankston Station if elected. Then, next day, the Socialist Party government promised it would build a 500-car multi-storey car park at Frankston Station if re-elected. OK, the bidding stands at 500. Any advance on 500? Frankston Station seems to be the most important station in the state. Surely it's got nothing to do with the fact it sits on a 0.4% margin, or anyone might think there could be a state election in the wind. In fact, the guy whose name most people has another policy guaranteeing we will arrive at our destinations right across the state roughly 10 minutes before the train leaves. Reported the weekend that 133 train killers tested positive to illegal drugs in the past year, with 28 discharged and many more under investigation, with ICE, not the frozen water version, but the seemingly ubiquitous version, the main culprit. But I raise this because some train killer support group person said the sackings were a tragedy because their drug use was often caused by mental illness brought on as a result of active duty all over the world defending all of us against major threats to our security and peace like Afghan wedding parties, which we've sensibly wiped out before they can produce more little terrorists. But it's the mental illness claim that we must question, because surely the mere fact that they enlisted in the first place would indicate they kicked off with something of a psychopathic problem. And for those hoping to make a killing like all good news outlets, we conclude with the week that was sport. And I'm having trouble understanding all this fuss over promoting gambling on a gimmicky race for the filthy rich on our great icon, the Opera House. Presumably the powers that be keeping their tasteful cultural respect for the Opera House intact by accompanying the gaudy display with that bit of the William Tell Overture, the well-known theme adapted for racing. But trouble understanding they argue it's a tourist promotion for True Blue Aussie, for Sydney, so why are they promoting tourism in the Himalayas? I don't get it. And the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review coverage last week of the grand final consisted of a double-page picky spread of a who's who of the caring True Blue Aussie business class barons of industry and a few baronesses of, and a collection of their puppets like Big Supremo scuttle them and Little Billy swallowing his socialist pride to mix with the rich and powerful part of his long-term surreptitious plan to overthrow capitalism and duly bash up the workers, heaps of them, enjoying a few drinks and a little bite to eat and I thought okay we mightn't have a lot of time for these people but we do have to admire their resilience and dedication busy busy people and let's face it keeping evil unions and workers in their places busy 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 business resilience and dedication in getting out in the cold queuing up all night in a city street just to get a precious ticket not unrelated, three days before the big game, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sid alerted us to the gross irresponsibility and insensitivity of evil unions under unions to clog streets. Huge union rally will bring city to a standstill. 
October 23 Change the Rules protest with unemotive objective phrases like Victoria's trade unions are bowing to bring Melbourne to a standstill with a huge rally calling for pay rises as many as 150,000 people are expected to descend on the city. The protest will clog CBD streets. A similar rally in May saw roads closed and tram services disrupted. And finally, the non-unrelated bit, two days later, the grand final parade saw the whole city closed down with the full support of the whopping sin. Oh, and as we would expect, finally, the aforementioned guy whose name most people can't remember said, anyone who thinks the socialist government can divorce itself from the militant unionists, well, they can't. And he questioned whether the evil unions would pay for the... Sorry, police presence, obviously needed to protect the community from this evil protest. The government and the unions are one and the same, he warned. Oh, listener, if only. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mr. Kevin Healy. And it's Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for his ever-popular program, City Limits. And time here is 4, 11 and... 38 seconds. The mission of the Jerusalem Peace Prize is as follows. The Jerusalem Peace Prize recognises the inspirational and extraordinary contributions and devoted efforts of Australian humanitarians seeking to aid Palestinians in their call for justice. By sharing the amazing efforts and tireless dedication of our recipients, We will remind the supporters of justice for Palestine of their noble ambitions and further shine a light on our hope for a just peace. The Jerusalem Peace Prize will bring together a community of humanitarians and encourage a debate of the efficacy of advocacy and inspire the next generation of advocates seeking justice for the Palestinians. The winner for the inaugural 2018 prize is Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, AM, who taught at many universities around the world, is a human rights activist, author of the Sydney Peace Foundation and Emeritus Professor at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. I spoke with Stuart yesterday and asked him first, was there a particular issue or conflict which set him off on the path of peace and conflict resolution and human rights, which has consumed a major part of his professional and private life, or was it his family background and early childhood influences? I think it was post-war Britain and realising that the building of the National Health Service meant that nobody should be um, financially punished for being sick. That was one one experience as a, as a kid growing up. But then I worked in the courts in London and Canada and saw injustice firsthand every day. A commitment to justice was almost came in my DNA. What about in third world or developing countries? Yeah, well, similarly, I mean, I spent time in Sri Lanka during that appalling civil war. I spent time in India for witnessed the most appalling poverty. We conducted inquiries into the genocide by the Indonesian Kapasas in in West Papua, 
and all that running in parallel to many, many visits to the West Bank and Gaza and to the appalling camps in uh, Jordan and Beirut and uh, so on. Talk about your visits to Palestine and the, the refugee camps and the people you met there and the, the lasting impact it had on you. I mean, I remember a, a beautiful former farmer from Galilee in a, who had been locked up virtually in a camp in um, southern Beirut since 1948. And he said, we only want the chance to prove that we are human beings. He was referring to the other 30,000 people in that pile of bricks and mortar so that was what i saw was not only wretched living conditions but but an appalling cruelty which the west uh, israel united states the european union is happy to go along with and so my dismay at the cruelty that i saw in the camps coupled to the enormous resilience of the palestinians was, was something i could not ignore I've recently seen the film 1948. It was part of the Palestine Film Festival here in Melbourne. I don't know whether you saw it in Sydney. No, I missed it, but I've heard lots about it. Yeah, although the filmmakers stressed that they wasn't made as a propaganda film for Palestine, you, you couldn't help but realise that what happened to the Palestinians during those years. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, I, I never cease to say that. Um, 1788 was 1948. In other words, when the British arrived and said that um, Australia was empty, that there was nobody here, so we'll we'll have it. Uh, the Zionists, uh, when they confronted the Palestinian issue in 1948, said, well, it was a land without a people for a people without a land. The tragedy of the Nakba in 1948, 700,000 people driven from their homes, over 500 villages completely raised from the face of the earth was a cruelty which we've only been allowed to talk about in the past few years really there was an effective almost propaganda war that went on from 1948 until recently which said that what what you saw in the film 1948 never really happened what changed i think slowly the awareness of uh, American and Israel cruelty has dawned on the public. I think the work of people like Ilan Pape, a famous book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. I think the, um, the, the writings and work of a wonderful Edward Said and the slow dawning of people, mostly through social media, that this is the most brutal occupation that we shouldn't, we shouldn't tolerate. Uh, the Israeli occupation of, um, of the West Bank, the dreadful cruelty of the siege of Gaza. And we're only just now beginning to wake up to that. And, to, um, and we can't avoid the pretense that we're, that we're part of the injustice unless we do something about it. And of course, it's, um, that spreads also into the Jewish populations around the world that they're waking up too. Some of them are, but uh, in other words, uh, for, for example, young Jewish students across American campuses are taking an important lead in uh, supporting the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement and opposing Israeli and American government policies. But at the same time, there's an attempt to redefine anti-Semitism to mean 
anybody anything that is critical of Israel. So on the one hand, sections of the Jewish population are taking injustice seriously. But on the other hand, there's a powerful lobby that uh, wishes to stifle free speech. How have you personally put your concerns into practice over the years? That's a good question. Look, writing is one thing. I mean, I never cease to write articles and uh, books trying to spell out what uh, justice should look like. I suppose become being a continuous advocate of universal human rights wherever it occurs, whether it was about the treatment of um, of Hicks in Guantanamo or whether it was about the cruelty towards the Tamils in Sri Lanka. But my priority has, be, has become Palestine and Palestinians. So talking, I mean, affecting alliances with, with all sorts of other friends and colleagues uh, in the Palestinian and Jewish communities, that's, that's crucial because as a single person, you can't really do anything. You have to work in unison and in alliance with colleagues of, of, of like mind. How much success have you had with politicians on both sides or all sides? Uh, look, the, I think the issue there is about courage. There's a handful of them who are courageous and speak out for justice and for human rights, whatever the consequences. But too many of them are cowards uh, on all sorts of issues. I mean, we heard that the Minister of Health this morning trying to justify why we continue to be cruel to children on Nauru, trying to pretend that it was the responsibility of the Nauruan government, not Australia. I mean, the, the cowardice and the cruelty that goes with such behaviour is appalling. And I'm afraid in Canberra there's too much uh, running policies and lives according to which way the political wind is blowing, according to which way the polls tell you you should act. I've never subscribed to that sort of um, way of thinking and acting. How important in your work with Palestine has been the, the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University, and has that put you into trouble in the past? Uh, well, look, it's been very important in terms of having um, colleagues like Hannah Middleton and others who were of like mind, and having gutsy, principled, energetic students who uh, knew injustice when they saw it. And, and, have, and being located within a very powerful institution such as Sydney University uh, and having a headed note paper and a telephone gave me a certain amount of influence. But um, the university is now being run like a business, not like an educational institution, so the centre uh, very shortly will no longer exist. I mean, I'm no longer there anyway. But look, it, yeah, it was... It was important, uh, there's no doubt about that, but more important was the, was the Peace Foundation that we created and the, the awarding uh, 15 years ago now of, the, of a Peace Prize to the Palestinian Hannah Nashrawi. Tell us about the furor that occurred after that. Well, uh, that, that, could, that should be a film, not just a book. I mean, it was a test case for what we believed in and what we stood for. I mean, the choice of... The choice of this wonderful, sophisticated, non-violent Palestinian woman created massive opposition from all over the world, from Tel Aviv to New York to Melbourne, back to Sydney and so on.
I received an avalanche of hate mail, abusive telephone calls from high-ranking so-called respectable people, and I had not realized that um, the Israeli lobby was so well organized in their antagonism to anything that looked slightly positive about a Palestinian. The test came when we were told, the foundation was told that we'd lose all our money unless we gave up on Dr. Hanan Nishrawi. And my, my response to that, which the wonderful political journalist Alan Ramsey printed in a full-page article in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, my response was, I don't care if we only have one cent left. If we give up on support for Dr. Ashrawi, we will stand for nothing. And I still believe that. <laughs> so um, that was a difficult time, but it was a time which, which I wish most people could, you know, face up to. Face up to the question, what do you stand for? What do you really believe in? And in more recent years, the efforts to sever ties with Israeli institutions, what are those ties? Well, Australian institutions tend to grovel towards Israel and Israeli academics. They grovel toward. I mean, they, when Netanyahu came to, to Australia a year ago, Prime Minister Turnbull said that, that, that Australia's values were the same as, as Israel's, which is an appalling notion. Basically, they, what he was saying was that we would be blind to the human rights of the Palestinian people. When you say boycott the tie, uh, I mean, break the ties, I mean, the, the big issue that's coming up in, for all of us in, uh, from now until May of next year is the Eurovision Song Contest, which is to be staged in Tel Aviv. Now, that, under no circumstances should that go ahead. It should be boycotted SBF television must be persuaded on the humanitarian and social justice grounds not to promote that event. In terms of your question about breaking the ties, that's, that's going to be a real test. Just how effective has the BDS been here in Australia, do you believe? Well, I think it's growing in Australia. I mean, I think there's a growing, growing awareness. There are groups across certain universities standing up for the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. There's, there are important websites, uh, I think, taking a guidance from uh, uh, Omar Baghouti, the, the architect of the BDS movement, is, has been important. The, the protests, particularly across the campus at Sydney University, that's produced a growing awareness. But, of course, what happens is that the right-wing news corporation press gets into the act with its usual hate and political blindness. So that's, that's not helpful. Um, it could be a great deal more successful, but I think we're growing, and there's, there's, a slow, there's a slow awareness that this is the most important social justice movement around the world at the moment. That's how I would pitch it. That's how I would refer to BDS. Well, you'll be in Melbourne on the 29th of November to accept your prize, the inaugural Jerusalem Peace Prize. I would imagine that you've had plenty of acknowledgement of your work in the past. Where do you put this prize in your well, career? I'm, I'm, I'm enormously honoured and grateful. It's really not just for me, but for hundreds of other people who've, who've 
work probably a lot harder than me. So to have a public occasion in which the gutsy former Foreign Minister Bob Carr is going to present the prize, that, that's also important. And the fact that it's being held in a place like the Victorian Parliament, that's also important. I hope the, uh, the media will um, give as much attention to that as they give to the Melbourne Cup or to the idea of putting advertisements for a horse race on the um, sales of the Sydney Opera House. It can't get much worse, can it? <laughs> no, no. All right, well, I'll look forward to seeing you on the 29th. I look forward to, uh, to you introducing yourself to me and vice versa. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees from Sydney University talking about his work for Palestine and at the end there his awarding of the inaugural Jerusalem Peace Prize for 2018. And that's coming up at the end of November. And if you'd like to attend at Parliament House here in Melbourne, if you look up JerusalemPeacePrize.com, there's the place where you can book a ticket to go and talk to Peter and listen to what he has to say. And um, also lots of other people there talking about what can be done and what should be done for the people in the occupied West Bank and also Gaza where people are dying every day. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And the time here at 3CR is 28 minutes past four. You might remember last week I played part of an interview I recorded with Peter Murphy about the International People's Tribunal in Brussels where the finding was against the President of the Philippines and all the hangers-on who keep him there in power. We had a slight technical problem which delayed the interview going to air which meant that I couldn't play the whole interview. I only played half so I thought it's an important issue so I'm playing the whole today. Guilty. Guilty, guilty. Pretty emphatic decision by the eight international jurors that placed Brussels, Belgium and the defendants. President Rodrigo Raya Duterte and his entire government. President Donald Trump and the entire US government. The IMF, the World Bank and transnational and foreign banks doing business in the Philippines. And it was at a tribunal hearing, the International People's Tribunal. Peter Murphy, representing the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, attended. Peter, can you first explain the background of this tribunal, when and why it was established? I think you could say that the Bertrand Russell initiative back in the 60s uh, was the important one. 
So uh, Bertrand Russell decided to establish a people's tribunal to um, investigate the crimes in the Vietnam War and made it quite an impact in world public opinion about the Vietnam War. In the 1970s, some of the people, I think, who were involved with the Bertrand Russell Tribunal held a conference in Algiers, I think in 76, adopted a declaration about people's rights and set up a permanent people's tribunal, which has meetings, you know, events uh, several times a year on different issues. There were two sessions of the Permanent People's Tribunal held on the Philippines. I think one one was under Marcos and uh, one was under Arroyo, 2007, I think. The Filipinos had this experience and so they decided to hold a, what they called an International People's Tribunal in the period of uh, the recent President Aquino's uh, administration. That was in 2015 and held in Washington, D.C., and this one under President Duterte in Brussels. Three years since the last one, and, but these are sort of ad hoc events. They're not organised by the Permanent People's Tribunal. However, in this one, the founder of the Permanent People's Tribunal, an Italian man called Gianni Tognoni, he took part as a juror. So that was a significant strengthening of the panel, in my view. But it's an indictment of the political system in the Philippines, isn't it, that, that the government of the Philippines keeps coming back to these tribunals as the accused? Being the accused, that's right, yeah. I think uh, it was a very alarming for, I think, the international judicial community to see the Chief Justice of the Philippines uh, removed earlier this year. There, there's other less prominent attacks being made on the judiciary at a high level, uh, as well, the ombudsman, who's actually a woman, was forced to resign. The Human Rights Commission had its budget slashed to, you know, a sort of derisory 1,000 pesos, like uh, $20 this year. But, but after a protest, some budget was really restored to it. But the message was, and, and there's been repeated statements by President Duterte, that uh, human rights act advocates should shut up or they should be shot. <laughs> variations on on that theme in relation to the international criminal court he threatened to arrest the prosecutor Fatou Bensouda if she ever landed in Manila how was the tribunal set up there's a prosecutor there's defendants do the defendants turn up no the defense didn't turn up but uh, the procedure is to send the charges to the uh, accused and invite them to att attend and present a defense and there were places for the defence lawyers there, but uh, no one came. The same thing happened in 2015. Whereas in 2015, Aquino administration really just ignored the, the event in Washington as best they could, this time the, the administration was really obsessed with it. It was broadcast live on Facebook, and when we visited the ambassador later in, in uh, Brussels, we could tell he had sat down for two days and watched it all. And I, I'm pretty sure because President Duterte himself made statements against the tribunal every day that he also was watching it. And it's a measure of the fragility and uh, I think the insecurity of this uh, Duterte administration that, that they behaved so differently from Aquino in 2015. It was really a bad situation then in 2015. It was heartrending to attend the tribunal and listen to the evidence, but uh, this time uh, it was even more intense. Now the situation's actually far worse. I think that's the thing that uh, the Duterte 
administration is is clearly confounding the international diplomatic community, judicial community, the human rights and aid sector, and uh, other sections of civil society like the trade union movement. So everyone's targeted virtually. Yeah, yeah. And what was the result? Well, it wasn't a surprise, but it, you know, it was a, a still a very emotional moment when this panel of eight jurors uh, read out their findings, and in the end, the, the lead juror, uh, a U.S. woman lawyer, said the defendants were found guilty on all charges, and the principal defendants were President Duterte and President Trump. Trump, because his administration has been financing directly the drug war and directly the counterinsurgency war that is targeting civilians in all sorts of uh, sectors of society. How were the jurors chosen? I think there was an invitation sent to them by the conveners and uh, there was a number of convening bodies. The one I'm in, the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines was one. There's also the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, which is a global arrangement. And there was also a European Association of Lawyers for Democracy and Human Rights, which is a section of IADL. EBON International, which is a research and advocacy institute originating in the Philippines, was another uh, one of the sponsoring bodies. Especially the lawyers in these networks are able to ask eminent people uh, if they're willing to be jurors. So I don't know how many were actually invited. I know some couldn't make it. And uh, there was one case of the Australian uh, Gil Boringer. Professor Boringer is a member of the Permanent People's Tribunal and in the initial planning he was going to be a juror. But when he got deported from the Philippines it was obvious that he he was uh, having a conflict of interest there. He became an expert witness. And this man, uh, Gianni Tognoni, himself uh, took that role. It's, an, it's a by invitation. There's uh, an effort to have people who aren't lawyers, but of course there is a solid group of, of uh, legal people on that panel of jurors. You said it's pretty harrowing to listen to the witnesses. Does that mean that you heard first-hand accounts of what's been happening? And in, and in some one or two cases, yes, first-hand. It's a situation where I, I've, I've heard of nearly every incident because I am engaged in the campaigns around the Philippines, but it's still completely different to meet the people who have been directly in, impacted. That is, you know, it's their husband or their mother or their children um, who, who have been killed uh, or, you know, have been arrested without a warrant and, you know, there's no end in sight of their incarceration without a trial. And so uh, one of the very early cases was uh, a trade union human rights story where the daughter of a woman who, who was uh, shot dead in Negros last, I'm not sure the date, I think it's in November last year, so it's still not long ago, she was the witness. So she, she grew up in Cebu and her father was a trade union organiser and he was just uh, arrested one day and disappeared the next day virtually. That was around 1990. So here we are like 18 years later. Her mother was already a very active person in the trade union movement in, in the 80s and 90s. She became a human rights campaigner after her husband disappeared. She was gunned down in a real hit, you know, in uh, Negros. She was leading a 13-person team investigating other harassments. 
just to interview the people and get witnesses and establish the facts as best as possible. And uh, they were harassed themselves. And when she went to make a complaint about this to the local authority, she was uh, ambushed. You know, the riders came up beside her on a motorcycle and shot her. There were three people shot on two motorcycles. Yeah, and so the daughter was in the team. She, she heard that her mother had been shot, raced to the hospital, stares her mother's body, and it was lifeless. So when you hear someone recount that, you know, you can't help but be very much struck by the uh, pathos of the situation, the, the, the pain, the anger, um, and the sense of completely being overwhelmed by, by events. And uh, there were several other witnesses like that. Thankfully, you know, there were more and you know, higher level expert witnesses giving more general accounts of the human rights situation where it wasn't so harsh, but there was, there was maybe 15 or 16 people like I've just described. It was, it was tough. Now, this is a volunteer-run organisation. Yes. Does the verdict or the verdicts go to a, a, a proper court? They are available for a proper court. Many countries have uh, a universal jurisdiction for the, the crimes against humanity and war crimes. It's a matter of some judicial authority being willing to take up the evidence which has been assembled through the process of this International People's Tribunal. But we also took the initiative to go to the International Criminal Court in The Hague and uh, we also went to the European Parliament and presented it to a particular uh, politician there who's in the Trade Committee of the Parliament and European Union is negotiating a free trade agreement with the Philippines. So it's not directly a judicial, but another political process involving the Philippines where these issues can be addressed directly. But in relation to the International Criminal Court, they have a information and evidence unit, and uh, we arranged to present the evidence and the verdict to them. And uh, they, they are rather you know, strict on the security at the ICC, and two people went in, and it wasn't me, uh, one of the leaders of the National Democratic Alliance called Bayan, it's a man, he, he was one of them, and Jimmy Lisa Badayos, the woman I described to you whose mother was shot last year, they were the two who went in and uh, had a discussion with the head of the unit, and, and uh, he accepted the, it's quite voluminous, three, three bound volumes of the evidence and uh, the verdict, he, uh, he said, yes, we will read what you've presented us, which is like our investigation. And he said, if we see enough material in there to warrant us to begin a preliminary investigation, we will do so and uh, we'll inform you of the process. So they gave us a letter to that effect. So I thought that was a rather respectful process and uh, I've got some confidence that there will be a serious assessment of what we developed at the IPT by those people at the ICC. And one of the reasons I, I believe that is there's already been two other groups of lawyers present evidence specifically on the war on drugs in the Philippines. As a result of the ICC even saying they would look at that, President Duterte made threats against the chief prosecutor. They've got a choice, you know, to be intimidated by Duterte or to push forward and, and really examine the, the information. And on the war on drugs, you know, it's rather compelling again the government admits that about 23,000 people had been killed in this program in within two years and and of those 4,410 I think 
the police themselves admitted to shooting, claiming that they'd all been people who had resisted and tried to shoot back, which is non-credible. There's enough cases that have been investigated to know that that's not credible. I mean, it's, a, it's a really a case of mass murder, egged on you know, by repeated public statements by the president. There's something going to happen, probably. The week that we were going to The Hague, the ICC stated that they were initiating the preliminary investigation in relation to the expulsion of the Rohingya from Myanmar, and they were investigating several generals. That's the first time they've stepped outside of Africa, I think, in terms of cases they've really got into. That's an encouragement to us because, of course, the Philippines is in Asia. Have there been previous attempts after verdicts against Philippines in those cases you mentioned over the years. Have you tried to get that case, those cases forwarded to groups like the ICC or is this the first time? This is the first time as far as I know. In, in 2015 the verdicts were delivered to all of the accused and of course they were promoted in the Philippines but no judicial process you know, got underway in the Philippines. And this is a sort of a step forward and you know, I think it had to go back to the Marcos time. Because the Permanent People's Tribunal did what it did, I think that the US courts were willing to take up the civil claims against the Marcoses made by the uh, victims of the martial law, that is, people who had been in, you know, arrested and uh, detained uh, without trial and whose property had been seized, and, and, and also the cases of people who had been tortured and killed. I think you, you could, you'd have to go back that far to find the international response to a, a very clear cry from Filipino people. You mentioned that the accused are the president and his whole government, the US government and banks that are dealing with it, but to a less extent there's the Australian government in there too, isn't there? It's not really, no. <laughs> aren't, aren't the Australian uh, government's lucky, I think, because Australia is the second biggest contributor of military aid to the Philippines so I think uh, in this case because the presence of the US is so overwhelming and the presence of the Australians is so hard to really see unless you're looking for it the indictments were limited you know, to the US as a government and, and of course Duterte as a government and the sort of really important global institutions which back up the, the programs that really harm the collective rights of people, you know, their rights to work, housing, health. These, uh, you know, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, in particular the Asia Development Bank, and some, you know, big institutions, private institutions, you know, like mining companies and so on. Yeah, I think Australia may, if, if it continues to expand its military role in the Philippines, which is alarming at the moment, it may be the next time around. Unfortunately, if there is a next time, that the Australian government may find itself also under the spotlight. How do the people feel at the end of this, Peter, once they've given their testimony and preparing to return home? Well, I think they felt very satisfied this time. And I think the same thing happened in Washington in 2015 too, because even though it's a sort of an artificial situation, you know, it's not a real court, but it's, it's conducted in a very proper fashion. The witnesses get to tell their story and answer the questions from the jurors and from the lawyers, and uh, they are heard, and then there's an answer given. 
that's acknowledging you know what they've experienced this is not what happens in the philippines still a very powerful uh, affirmation to these people of their humanity and their human rights that they were heard and that the truth was told and the truth was acknowledged yeah it's a very powerful emotion ran through the the room when the verdict was declared and in the following days as as we went to the european parliament the icc even the philippines embassy in belgium you know the the sense of achievement got stronger of course there was a few days in which uh, after that which uh, there were some forums held in amsterdam and the hague um and in utrecht Netherlands where the, the National Democratic Front of the Philippines has an office so there's a, a venue there to sit down and assess the whole thing. It was a, all a very, very strong, positive experience for the people taking part. Thanks, Peter. Mm. Uh, thank you very much for your interest in this, Jan. It's a, a big and growing story, I think. And that, of course, was human rights activist Peter Murphy back from Brussels and also from Holland or the Netherlands in recent weeks. It's now 4.48 and you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. You can be listening on your old analogue, 8.55am. You could be listening on digital 3CR. You could be taking it later, podcast, having it delivered straight to your computer on 3cr.org.au or streaming on 3cr.org.au for a whole week. That's all the, some of the things that you can do to listen to 3CR. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and Let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. World Mental Health Day 2018 is coming up on October 10th. This year, the World Health Organisation's theme is Young People and Mental Health in a Changing World. Talking about what it means to grow up in today's society and how to build mental resilience to cope with pressures. To celebrate on Brainwaves, we want to hear from you. Send in your stories about what resilience and mental health means to you. Head to brainwaves.org.au to find out more and submit your story. Tune into 3CR Community Radio on Wednesday, the 10th of October at 5 pm to hear our special Mental Health Week edition of Brainwave. Or listen to the podcast on the 3CR website. Brainwave, hear the world differently. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Pretty emphatic. Peter Wig. 
Peter Wig is a Melbourne doctor and a member of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. He has seen the devastating effects of war on non-combatants as a volunteer in a number of countries in recent years. His talk today focuses on the so-called nuclear deterrent, why it is a fallacy and does nothing for peace and the ending of wars. Last year, of the world's 195 countries, 122 supported the setting up of an international treaty at a conference mandated by the United Nations banning nuclear weapons as illegal. The Nuclear Weapons Prohibition Treaty was an important step towards saving us all from the threat of a possible nuclear war. Such a war could destroy the world as we know it. None of the countries that actually has nuclear weapons has signed and agreed to the banning of nuclear weapons, however, and nor have a number of their supporters, including Australia. The chief justification for the retention of such weapons is that of nuclear deterrence. Their possession by a select few is said to promote peace for all of us, since the threat of their use deters major conflicts that would otherwise occur. Is this a fair justification? And what are the arguments against it? In other words, since there are other possible ways to defuse or manage conflicts and keep the peace, is doing so by using the threat of nuclear annihilation our best option, as the Australian government says it is? I've drawn up a list of arguments against this justification, which I will now offer. Firstly, one of the main arguments against the stated nuclear deterrence strategy and the one used by the International Campaign for Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, is simply the extreme humanitarian consequences if even one weapon is used, to which, according to the International Red Cross, no institution in the world has the capacity to respond medically in any meaningful way. Add to this the environmental consequences of an exchange of any magnitude and the mass suffering this would entail, and we have a crime against humanity of the most extreme order. And, apart from being criminal, a nuclear exchange would also be foolish beyond measure, in that so much would be lost, and so little gained by either side. Yet this is how mad the world has become, that many countries, including Australia, think this is a justified thing to threaten to do. A second and related argument is the risk that nuclear weapons will be used for little or no cause if they are retained by anyone. In his book The Doomsday Machine, Daniel Ellsberg reveals that during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union kept the world much closer to nuclear devastation than most people realise, and that there were many close calls of which most people were unaware at the time, each the result of minor squabbles compared to the destruction threatened. Since then, nuclear exchanges by mistake due to false alarms, have also almost happened on a number of known occasions, and probably on unknown occasions too. Some say, in fact, that every day this does not occur is a lucky one for the world. An added risk is that terrorist organisations may target nuclear arsenals with dire consequences. And another risk is that nuclear weapons will be used aggressively at some point by a particularly belligerent leader of one of the nuclear armed states, if they are available. Truman did so. It is thought that Barry Goldwater would also have done so had he been an elected US president. More recently, Donald Trump has made similar threats. The Doomsday Clock, maintained since 1947 by the members of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists' Science and Security Board to represent the likelihood of a man-made global catastrophe, 
has recently been reset by them at two minutes to midnight, the closest since 1953. This has been in response to a deteriorating world situation seen as increasing the likelihood of a nuclear exchange, including the lack of a coherent US foreign policy and unchecked climate change. Third argument, if some countries have nuclear weapons, more are likely to acquire them as time passes, as we have already seen, making all of the above risks ever greater. These three arguments are thought to have motivated the large numbers of non-nuclear countries who support the Nuclear Ban Treaty, though there are others they may have considered. But these arguments seem to be readily ignored by the nuclear-armed major powers and their supporters. Why? Despite being signatories to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the nuclear powers have not worked towards nuclear disarmament, as this treaty commits them to, but go on possessing nuclear weapons in large numbers, upgrading them and developing new versions, thus encouraging others to acquire them. Even the knowledge that a nuclear winter would follow any significant exchange, devastating the entire world, has not deterred them. The extreme risks means that others should not have them, they say, but we still should. It is precisely because the consequences of their use are so terrible that they work so well as a deterrent, they say. The risk is justified. The shakiness of this assertion, compared to the magnitude of the risk, suggests a fourth argument against the nuclear deterrence justification, namely questioning the authenticity of the deterrence justification anyway. Is deterrence the real motivation of the major nuclear powers? Do they really want to prevent war, and is this the actual reason they do not support the ban? Or is nuclear deterrence merely a cover for something else? Perhaps there is also an attachment to the capacity these weapons provide to bully others who do not have them, and bullies are inclined to ignore risks. In other words, do the nuclear-armed nations want actually to support wars if they wish, and the idea that might is right, as long as they are ultimately assured of winning with these weapons as their ultimate threat? The United States and the United Kingdom, for example, have indeed initiated wars in other countries in recent decades, supported by Australia, as a way of dominating those countries by force and furthering their own needs. They hold nuclear weapons to deter wars, they say, but they have waged wars. They are not championing the peace they say they are committed to. In conducting these military assaults on others, they say they are establishing democracy and saving people from brutal leaders or punishing crimes or protecting themselves and the rest of the world from attack. But these reasons have all proved spurious and have not been the achievements of the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq, for example. Is this because the perpetrators of these wars are foolishly naive in what they think military assault can achieve, or is it because they lie about their motives? Have they achieved other things different from what they said they were fighting for? Less palatable things, perhaps? And is nuclear deterrence a similar lie, making something ugly look virtuous? Britain, for example, has a nuclear arsenal ostensibly to protect itself from unprovoked attack. But why would anyone wish to invade Britain unprovoked? Britain is a crowded country with little spare land and few natural resources left that someone else might acquire through attack. Britain's power resides in its being a highly educated, highly organised society with global trade and financial management connections, none of which can be acquired by another country by force. All you get through invasion is an overcrowded country with few resources, no longer well organised and well connected, and dependent on others to supply the basic needs of its population. 
Britain's power also rests on its military might and military alliances, however, and the one reason to attack Britain is to protect against, or in retaliation for, British belligerents elsewhere. In other words, Britain could be seen as having nuclear weapons not to deter unprovoked attack, but to enable it to attack others. The United States' homeland similarly could not be attacked spontaneously for any useful gain, but others might wish to attack it to protect themselves against, or in retaliation for, US military activities elsewhere. This happened in the case of the Twin Towers attack, which were obviously not an attempted takeover or a major threat to the country as a whole, but appears to have been done in retaliation for US behaviour in other countries. And how surprised and outraged they were that anyone should dare to retaliate and was not deterred by US might. Hundreds of thousands of Arabs had subsequently to die for such daring. So again, are US nuclear weapons there to protect the US from unprovoked attack, or are they the ultimate expression of America's huge military clout, intended to enable it to do what it likes for the most part? Daniel Ellsberg, who I've already mentioned in his account of the history of US nuclear weapons policy, the Doomsday Machine, says that US nuclear plans and preparations have always been for preemptive launch-on-worry approach, with deterrence never the primary purpose. He describes numerous occasions on which the US has pointed this gun at others to force its agenda. Joseph Gerson, in his book Empire and the Bomb, also makes sense of the United States' ownership of nuclear weapons in this way, as being not for deterrence, but in order to dominate others. He lists 38 well-documented instances since 1946 of the US threatening first use of nuclear weapons to get its way by blackmail. In other words, deterrence is not deterrence of war, but deterrence of opposition. A fifth argument, and another reason to question the authenticity of the so-called nuclear deterrence, is that there are enormous pressures for promoting the manufacture of weapons of all kinds, including nuclear weapons, in each of the nuclear-armed countries. Apart from Germany, the chief arms manufacturing states, the US, Russia, UK, France, China and Israel, are also the nuclear states. All have a powerful financial commitment to the nuclear arms industry. But, supposing the nuclear weapons really are kept only for deterrence, a sixth argument is to question how well they work in this respect. The answer seems to be, not for most countries possessing them. Iraq invaded Kuwait, despite the fact that the US had its nuclear weapons. Argentina invaded the Falklands, despite the fact that Britain has nuclear weapons. Saddam Hussein attacked Israel during the Gulf War, despite Israel's nuclear weapons. The Twin Towers attack occurred, despite the US nuclear arsenal. On the other hand, North Korea would probably have been invaded by the US if it did not have nuclear weapons, and Iraq would probably not have been, been invaded if it did have them. So they work as a, deterrent, as a deterrent for a small rogue state, defying the big ones, but mostly not for the big ones. As for deterring the war between large nuclear countries, such as the United States and Russia, or the United States and China, we do not know if the absence of overt aggression during the Cold War was because of the nuclear weapons or not. The standoff between the US and the Soviet Union may have depended partly on the mutual possession of nuclear weapons, but there were also many other reasons why they did not attack each other militarily, and it did not deter the US invasion of Vietnam, ostensibly to contain Russia. In short, it does seem that nuclear deterrence 
fails to address the kind of armed threats we actually face in the current world. A seventh argument is that the possession of nuclear weapons, ostensibly for deterrence, has always been associated with undemocratic secrecy and deception of the general public to gain their agreement. Governments wish to scare others with the dreadful nature of these weapons while doing everything possible to simultaneously falsely reassure their own citizens that they are not as bad as you might think and that there are feasible means to protect yourself, which there are not. The concept of deterrence, in fact, is suicidal, but this cannot be said. For example, a nuclear explosion of 200 kilotons at NATO's military base in Aviano in Italy, where most of the US nuclear weapons in Europe are stationed, would lead to radioactive fallout that within a few days would contaminate most of Europe. As for Australia, the US communication bases in Australia, which we allow in exchange for the nuclear deterrence umbrella, would be the reason for a nuclear attack on Australia if there were ever a nuclear war involving the US. Nuclear deterrence is a deadly concept for us too, unmentioned by our government. An eighth argument against nuclear deterrence is the extreme cost of nuclear weapons and the huge opportunity costs in not using these funds to deter armed conflict in other ways. A ninth argument for a non-nuclear country like Australia against supporting the nuclear deterrence justification is our reliance on the so-called nuclear umbrella provided by the United States which distorts our foreign policy and compromises our independence in this regard. The idea that the United States is going to protect us from all foreign threats has had us support and ape US foreign policy even when it is morally questionable or simply not in Australia's best interests. Our relationship with Southeast Asian states is generally impaired by this lack of foreign policy independence and our relationship with China particularly so. We have American war support facilities and American military personnel based on our shores. We parent American assertions about other countries and we fail to initiate our own independent assessment and relationship with the countries in our region, even those with whom we have important trade. Finally, still supposing the nuclear weapons really are kept only for deterrence, a tenth argument against this is that it establishes and perpetuates a view of international relationships in which only threats of dire destruction stop people fighting each other. Is this a reasonable idea? The idea that peaceful relationships could be based on trade and mutual respect and mutual recognition of the advantages of peace to all concerned is sidelined if one or both of the countries involved is already threatening the other with nuclear obliteration. This is not how we conduct our everyday relationships with others and nor would we expect it to work well if we threatened others with horrific injury as a way to seek cooperation. Imagine your household had an argument with your neighbours, so you acquired a very nasty weapon, chemical or biological perhaps, and they did too. Would this make you feel more secure? That justice was going to prevail? For me, the main argument will always be this last one, the idea that peace can only be established through dire threats with the nastiest weapons imaginable is itself dangerously self-fulfilling, a trap we are in which depends on a view of others so mean-spirited and pessimistic as to lack common sense. Only a bully would see the world in this way, and only bullies would want to have nuclear weapons to further their ends. Most countries in the world see a need to be ready to defend themselves, of course, but no need to threaten each other continuously with utter destruction, simply to feel safe. This is probably because most other countries are not seeking to dominate others, 
so much as to establish mutually advantageous agreements with them. Yet Australia supports the bullying approach with all its risks to ourselves and others. It may be possible to say we can do nothing about this issue anyway, and it may be possible for us to ignore the dire consequences of possible nuclear war by convincing ourselves that this will never happen or that we might as well be on the winning side if it does happen for what that will be worth. On the other hand, it is harder to ignore, or to ignore the good sense of most other countries in the world who conduct their international relations based on cooperation without the extreme belligerence of threatening others with obliteration as a starting position. And it is not true that we can do nothing. We could promote that vision for the world, and we could sign the Ban Treaty too. And that was Dr Peter Wigg from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and Peter knows all about war. He's volunteered a great number of times as um, a doctor with Medicine Sans Frontières in war zones around the world. If you'd like to find out more about Medical Association for the Prevention of War, just look up the webpage or their Facebook page and you'll find out all about the, the work that they do to promote peace and oppose war. Join 3CR's breakfast teams at our annual film fundraiser on Saturday, October 13th. At Luke Project Space and Bar, 23 Myers Place, Nam. And we'll be screening the film Life is Waiting, looking at referendum and resistance in Western Sahara, followed by a post-show live panel discussion featuring Kamal Fadel from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Now, tickets are a good $15 for the waged and $5 unwaged at the door, so... Come along, have a bit of fun. All proceeds go to Keeping Breakfast Programming on air as 3CR, so you can keep hearing these beautiful voices we have at our radio station. And that, again, will be on Saturday, the 13th of October from 5 p.m. Film starts at 6, um, preferably show up by 5.30, and hopefully to see you all lovely people there. Well, I love 3CR, and so I'm going to definitely be there. The struggle for peace on Jeju Island, now part of South Korea, goes back in history to 938, when the island was first occupied by Korea, then the Mongols, and for 500 years, the reign of the Joseon dynasty. Then World War II, and the division of the peninsula by the US and the Soviet Union, which turned Jeju into a battlefield for subsequent Cold War conflict on the peninsula and until today the people of Jeju struggle for land, peace and life. Buddy Bell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence was recently in Jeju taking part in a peace march in opposition to the construction of the second airport which will have a military character despite official denials. Buddy, take us back prior to and during World War Two, and what the Japanese occupation of the island of Jeju, which is located southwest of the Korean peninsula between South Korea and Japan, what that meant for the people. Well, Jeju Island, south of South Korea, has distinct uh, culture from the mainland Korea, just because it's an island. Uh, it also was occupied just as all of Korea was occupied by the Japanese prior to World War II, and the Japanese occupation had 
the Japanese choose certain Koreans to sort of be their overseers to initiate uh, the policies that they wanted to initiate in social and, and economic life on the island. So they built at least one um, airstrip, which I visited, called the Aldrew Air Base. It's now a museum. But that is where uh, Japanese planes took off from that airport uh, in order to bomb Nanjing. The Nanking Massacre is, uh, was carried out from Jeju Island. After World War II, of course, uh, with the Koreas being split down the middle of, in the Korean War, you had the U.S. coming in after the, the Japanese were defeated. The U.S. came in and, uh, in many cases, kept uh, in power the same people that the Japanese had had in power to oversee the population. Around this time when the Korean Peninsula was being divided, there was a push for elections throughout the whole nation of Korea, which the U.S. believed Kim Il-sung would win those elections, the military hero from North Korea. There were many community groups on Jeju Island who agreed that the, the whole country should hold an election together. But the U.S. plan was to have an election only of South Korea uh, alone and that they would become a separate nation from North Korea. There were many people that didn't like the fact that the U.S. was dictating terms of an election to them as well as terms of many other facets of life on the island and keeping the same uh, hated people over them, controlling uh, what they did. And so there was many acts of resistance that were suppressed by the U.S. government. And actually, there was a, a massacre on April 4th. The April 4th movement was put down violently by the U.S. And, of course, the U.S. using rhetoric, uh, to say that all of these people resisting what the U.S. wants to do, uh, they are communists or communist sympathizers. They killed many people. There's a specific waterfall in Jeju Island, which falls from right at the coast. There is a river that goes over a cliff and almost directly into the ocean. Ringleaders of movements and strikes and marches would be rounded up, and, and many of them were made to stand at the top of this waterfall and shot so they would fall over. All of the repression that happened in the late 40s was prohibited. You could not speak about it at all in South Korea until about the early 90s. I can't remember the exact year, but in the early 90s, finally, the, the government liberalized uh, a bit, and you were able to talk about this massacre. But the government never apologized until about 2015 was the first year that the government actually held a, a ceremony to apologize for their own role in that in those events. It wasn't just many people massacred. It was something like 20,000, 30,000 people massacred, up to 10% of the population. Is that right? I don't have the exact numbers. I'm sure it's right what you read or heard. And it's actually something that they call um, the spoiled men because so many men were killed that women took up a lot of roles that were traditionally 
they weren't allowed to to do. Like they had to become main breadwinners for many families, for thousands of families. The men that still were alive were sort of uh, honored just because there weren't many of them until they called them the spoiled men. It's one interesting thing about just the scale of the massacre because it does change the whole society. When did the people of Jeju find out that the the U.S. was planning or the government was planning to build a, a naval base on Jeju? You know, I, I sort of went to support the anti-naval base protest in the middle, which was my first time going over there was uh, 2015. It had been going on, I believe, either somewhere between three and six years before that. Uh, The government first said that they would build a civilian, it would be a dual-use civilian and military facility supposedly thinking they would bring in uh, cruise ships uh, or something like that. But that hasn't materialized. It's only been used for military purposes, and actually they've hosted the USS Mississippi, which is a, a nuclear submarine. So upon the news of that submarine being docked in the new naval base somewhere around last October or November, there was a protest of that because having a nuclear submarine uh, on the shores of South Korea is, is definitely could be seen as something that's meant to rile up the relations between South Korea and North Korea as they're trying to uh, negotiate a peace accord. Also, the environmental risk of having a nuclear battleship off the shores of, of an island with many species of endangered coral and pink dolphins, something to worry about. It makes a bit of mockery of the designation of the island as an island of peace. Yes, it does. Talk about the demonstrations, the first one you went to, and what the people were saying and what you got involved with. Well, I was lucky to be invited to the Grand Jeju March of 2018, and it was an opportunity to go and re-meet many of the people I had met three years before. And in this particular year, the Grand Jeju March, which every year used to go from Kanjang, the new naval base, to the capital city, Jeju City, was in two different directions around the island to meet back up at the end. This year, they they did a, a variation on that to go from Kanjang Naval Base to the designated site of a new airport that's mainland government wants to fund and uh, many of the tourist interests, tourist industry interests want to build on Jeju Island, um, which would be their second commercial airport. And again, the, the government is saying this is, this is only going to be commercial, but activists think it's going to be also have a military character. Besides that, many of Jeju's uh, long-term residents sort of resent the hyper-tourism that's going on um, because it's really stressing the water resources and other resources on the island to have so many tourist resorts in place of where what used to be land that cultivated citrus or peanuts, peppers. There was a large march that was maybe two to three hundred strong made up 
by a lot of adult activists, but also joined by many schools along the route, which ranged from elementary to high school. This is a three-day walk to oppose the new airport. It's only a fairly small island, isn't it? Where are you going to put a second airport, especially if it's going to have heavy planes on it? It's got to be a long runway. It is large enough in that sense for a second airport because uh, the it takes maybe about an hour to drive from the north to the south of it, and it's also longer east to west, about twice as long east to west. Um, but, it, yes, it, if you were on a continental mass of land and you saw these airports so close together, it would be strange. Talk some more about the people that were on the demonstration, on the march. People came from many countries. Well, we had a an international delegation that included people from Taiwan, from Hong Kong, uh, Japan, and a couple of people from the U.S. But mainly this march was made up of uh, Jeju Island residents, some activists from the mainland as well, mainland Korea. Was there any opposition from the authorities to the march, or were you allowed to go ahead? Well, the authorities did not try to prevent the march. It's kind of been several years that this march has been going on. What they do try to prevent is when protests are successfully blocking construction vehicles or equipment. Police have been brutal and have seriously injured many of the anti-Kanjung-based activists over the years. In the Grand Jeju March, we didn't have, I didn't see any, any of that happening. Actually, the first day, there was some police stopping traffic for the march. After about the first half day, the march did its own directing of traffic. There were people, like a team, that was doing that. Has construction started for this airport? It has not, and actually they need to move a fairly large hill in order to build to actually even out the land for the airport. They need to remove this very large hill, which is a park on, on the summit of it, as well as many um, grave sites at the summit of it. Also, many homes are going to need to be demolished, possibly an old fort that was built several centuries ago, possibly a school will need to be relocated as well. So there's likely to be more protests? Yes, there definitely will be. There's an international fleet review. Can you tell me about that? Yes, last I read, it was 49 countries that had confirmed that they will be sending naval ships to sort of parade or um, just sort of process by Jeju Island as invited by the South Korean government. The activists say this is an insult. You've already built the base, and now there's going to be basically this parade of boats going by which are capable of killing, uh, destroying the Korean nation, another nation, or possibly you're talking about nuclear ships uh, just wipe out all life on the planet. It doesn't bode well for peace talks between North and South Korea if they're 
bring things in like this? President Trump actually did make a progressive move by stopping the joint exercises uh, that the U.S. military does with South Korea. Well, it's not scheduled for maybe nine more months, so it could always he could always change his mind about that. But yes, those exercises were um, one of the main complaints that North Korea always had because the exercises where fighter planes fly up to the the border airspace and then turn at the last moment, you know, practicing for an invasion. So it is going to be a mini step back to have something like this naval parade. How far from the border between North Korea and South Korea is Jeju Island? I can't really tell you a number of miles, but if you take a high-speed train, it, it could be about two hours to the where you would get a ferry, and a ferry would be maybe three to four hours from there. Flight takes about 30 minutes or so. It's up the south coast of South Korea. So it's aimed as a provocation, isn't it's, it? It's quite, I mean, it's as far as you can get from North Korea and still be in South Korea. Yep. You also went to Japan for a peace walk there? Yes, ma'am. I went to an anti-nuclear walk which, and also an anti-Hinoko-based walk, which was organized by some activists who are part of the, the Buddhist faith who do several peace walks a year as part of their faith. And they are very concerned with militarization in Japan as the Abe government, which just uh, enjoyed re-election, is moving to uh, get rid of their, their peace constitution, their Article 9, um, which prohibits the Japan from from having a, uh, an offensive army. Part of that is how they deal with Okinawa um, in terms of Japan's relation with the U.S. Well, the U.S. is already occupying 33 bases on the island of Okinawa, um, which I do know is 80 kilometers long, but not that, that not very wide. There is a, a new naval base and naval air base, a joint naval and air base being built at Hinoko. So the activists that I joined on this peace walk, they live only about a mile from where the base is being built, and they go there almost every day to join the protest, the protest encampment that is there. I've been there when they had about 200 people in front of the gate, the construction gate, blocking the construction vehicles from entering, and the police pulling them apart. They're holding on one, one to the other, to try and avoid the police from breaking them apart. This forestalls the entrance of construction vehicles for an hour or two. That's happening in Okinawa, this next U.S. naval air base that's being built. They actually have to fill in land in a bay called Ora Bay in order to build the runway because Okinawa is very mountainous. There isn't flat land where they're building. And so part of this walk that, that extended into the main 
four islands of Japan that we think of as the country of Japan, Kyushu, which is the southern island of that cluster, and the south part of Honshu, which is the most populated island, which includes Osaka and Tokyo. There are many cities and towns where the government, the federal Japanese government is saying, we want to bring soil from, from your land and take it to Okinawa to fill in the bay for the runway. This march was going from town to town to raise awareness of that issue and try to encourage people to tell their uh, city officials, and we, we met with a few mayors and city council people, tell them to uh, disallow the moving of this soil. And as well, um, because the walk, they wanted to coincide ending point in Hiroshima on the actual day when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in 1945, which was August 6th. Nuclear war and nuclear power was also a theme of this walk. We went by also a site where a nuclear power plant uh, is proposed. Walked down a, a very deserted forest road and then, then down a trail, an overgrown trail, and down to the beach, and you see, like, there's land that's cleared, and, and they're getting ready to put a nuclear power plant there. We held vigil there for a while. That was along our way to Hiroshima. So this march also joined a march from Tokyo, which also ended in Hiroshima, coming from the north. Do people focus much on climate change and the nuclear industry because there have been very ferocious storms, there's been flooding, there's been tsunamis, which um, you would think would make them think twice about building new, new nuclear power plants? Fukushima accident or disaster that was going to happen um, eventually was something that people did talk a lot about. The people that don't want nuclear power, the ones that want to phase it out and move to other sources of power, paired with conservation of power. They do think a lot about Fukushima and what would happen uh, if there was another such incident. You know, also, Fukushima is its still spewing radiation, and it's right on the ocean. That radiation is, is going to the ocean. You know, the engineers have been hard at work trying to prevent the melted core from... They're trying to isolate it from the ocean, doing things like drilling rods way down into the ground to freeze the ground. So these rods would freeze the water in the ground around them and sort of build an ice wall to keep out the water that's moving past the reactor core, which melted down. Still, they cannot, even um, a, a robot cannot get to the actual core wherever it is way down in this hole. They want people to think about what's happening there because the Japanese government is keeping that kind of hush-hush. Uh, we only hear about it outside uh, activist press. So just having one disaster is bad enough. If you're building more and more power plants, uh, you're going to have more and more disasters. Uh, it's just a matter of time. It's actually a certainty over time. Same thing goes with keeping a nuclear arsenal. There have been rumors that President Abe wants to wants Japan to have 
few nuclear weapons. And, of course, the march we, that I was on uh, would be opposed to that. But, of course, they, are, they would be in the, the minority as far as who has thousands of weapons ready to go are Russia and the United States, several other countries that have some hundreds. None of these nuclear weapon states have been part of negotiations in the United Nations initiate the convention on the pre on the prohibition of nuclear weapons the treaty which i'm not sure how many countries have ratified it so far but among the countries ratifying it none have nuclear weapons as far as we know the only one who the only country that even was part of the initial negotiations to try to hammer out the details was north korea although they haven't ratified the agreement yet. The others totally just uh, walked out of the United Nations when this issue came up. They just walked out, led by the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Can I take you back to Okinawa for a moment? The people there have been campaigning for decades to get rid of those U.S. bases, and there was talk a few years ago that some of them would be moved to Guam. Is that all gone now? No, I mean, I think that's probably a possibility, considering that uh, the protests against the, the bases continue to be strong on Okinawa, the, the actual level of resistance from the local population is a thorn in the side of the U.S., I, I'm sure, especially when there are incidents of misbehavior or criminal behavior by U.S. soldiers, and then the soldiers go back to the base, the Okinawa law enforcement can't reach them because the uh, U.S. military won't allow them to take custody of these soldiers. And uh, this is part of a status of forces agreement that seems to be something that the United States never wants to cede authority to the country where um, their base is located, they never want to cede criminal justice authority to the host government. They always want to keep it in-house. Who is going to uh, give justice to a member of the local population? It's not going to be the U.S. government's uh, judges. It's going to be, if anybody, their, their own country's judges. Of course, the same issue is on Guam, but as far as I know, there's not quite as much resistance to bases on Guam because I, I believe that even U.S. residents on Guam outnumber the very small local population, a native population to Guam. As far as I know, the resistance on Okinawa is larger. And that was Buddy Bell, a member of... Voices for Creative Nonviolence, who are based in Chicago, U.S., speaking about walks. This first one was to on Jeju Island, an island off South Korea, and the second one, Okinawa, in Japan. <laughs> Friends of the Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside Tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. 
Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au, get sponsored, spread the word and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of PTR. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. On the program last week, I played the first part of a long interview with Dr. Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy, recently back from the Middle East. We pick up on the interview with Tim talking about the e-scooter and the opening of schools after the Islamic fighters had been forced from the area. So there's a type of restoration of, of normal life there, and one of the most notable things is that there were no normal schools in the Iskuta area during the occupation by Jaish al-Islam and Falak al-Rahman and Jabhat al-Nusra, the, the Islamist groups that were largely Saudi-sponsored in that area. There were no normal schools. There were just these little madrasas where some children would be taken in for religious instruction. Indeed, the schools themselves were taken over as facilities by the armed groups. They were quite convenient facilities for their storage and for their operations and sometimes for their jails. And sometimes they would use them as a type of cover and build tunnels into the schools and then claim that the the Syrian army was um, bombing schools when they were going after the headquarters of the armed groups. You know, the same thing in Douma, really. They were just closing up a tunnel in um, one of the boys' schools in Douma when I was there that had been linked up to the, the major tunnel complex there. They'd taken all of the equipment out of the school, all of the desks and so on, and... The schools had been reopened about two weeks when I was there, about um, two weeks ago. So that change um, tells you something about the population and their relationship with, with the armed groups. For example, some people tend to think that very conservative um, religious people were m- more sympathetic to the jihadists. And to some extent, there's a little bit of truth in that, but I've seen examples where those very conservative religious people, the women wearing burqas and so on, they were brutalised in many cases as much as anyone else by some of those groups. Um, in Deir Zur, I saw it where they were people had been mutilated and they were robbed. There were fined, for example, women wearing burqas. If they looked at someone, 
they would be fined by these um, religious police of these jihadist groups, for example. And so even though they had very conservative attitudes and you think it was a more favourable climate for those uh, extremist jihadist groups to be in, those people were also brutalised. And I saw the same sort of thing in Douma, in the, the, this big city of several hundred thousand in the north of the Iskuta, where there were indeed a lot of women wearing burqas and their children, well, a lot of children in the area for, for other reasons, but they were very keen to send their kids back to school as soon as the, the secular national system of education reopened. There were hundreds and hundreds of, of young children, boys and girls, in that part of the country, they're segregated, gender segregated, so I saw two big schools in, um, in Duma, and I was told there's about 20 schools in Duma, and the boys' school, which held several hundred, was just starting to reopen. They were moving desks back in as we were there, and there were a lot of young boys there. The girls' school was much bigger. The girls' school, I was told, held 1,400. I saw hundreds and hundreds of young girls there, and most of them were wearing hijabs. None of them were wearing burqas. Quite a lot of them were not wearing any head covering at all. So very different in character to the madrasas, the, the little religious classes that the jihadists hold for some of the young children there. So there was an immediate shift, and I was told that I was looking at some of the checkpoints there, the soldiers, for example, monitoring the people coming in and out of the hospital in Duma. Most of the women there were wearing burqas or, or very serious um, body covering, but they were getting used to the soldiers' presence there. When you think about it, the Syrian army is much more representative of Syrian society than the jihadist groups were because even though some of them, like Jaish al-Islam, were had Syrian leaders and a lot of Syrian members, they had uh, foreign commanders, many foreign commanders, who've left behind a lot of children in that region, for example. Another interesting feature of the Iskuta was that a lot of the, the Syrian jihadist groups or members, Syrian members of the jihadist groups have joined the army. There's about 1,200 from Bailak al-Rahman who are now, they call them Jundi Musalaha, you know, reconciliation soldiers. They're in the army itself. Of course, they're being, they're under surveillance. They're being given responsibilities which aren't, aren't the most sensitive responsibilities. But a number of those relatively young men are integrated into the army and are being watched and they're their sheikhs, their religious leaders are having meetings with the military people and so on. So there's a, there's a sort of a, a cautious, sometimes uneasy sort of reintegration of things going on there at the moment. There are some, in the Holy Scooter area, there are still considered to be sleeper cells. There are still arrests of some people. There are still weapons that are buried. But overall, there is a sort of a gradual normalisation going on. As I said, the most dramatic feature of which was children going back to school. And the children without fathers, are they, is there discrimination at all that you know of? It's a big problem, actually. There was a debate in Syrian Parliament when I was there in the National Assembly. At the moment, it's not automatically um, assumed that they're going to be Syrian citizens. I'm not sure what else they're going to do with it, but normally in the Syrian law and, and most of the Arab legal systems, your father determines your nationality and often your community. So if you don't have a Syrian father, you can't prove you've got a Syrian father. Normally, you're not a Syrian citizen. But they haven't resolved that in this case. They've been talking about it. So a number of the the women, um, so a number, most of them have, not all of them, but most of them have mothers. But 
in many cases the jihadists had multiple wives. I heard of one case where a woman said that she was the 41st wife of one of these leaders of one of the jihadist groups. You know, a general in the Iskuta, in the south of the Iskuta, south of the river, was telling me that he thinks that a lot of them are very dangerous, extremely dangerous. They've been treated separately to the other children in the region who have their own psychological problems of having grown up during a war and not being able to go to school and just going to school for the first time now and having the trauma of seeing people being killed with religious slogans attached to it, you know, that people are shouting, God is great, you know, when they cut someone's throat, for example, that sort of brutalizing of children, which must be very damaging to their, to their mentality. But the children of the, of the jihadists themselves, a number of them have participated in serious violence too. So this general was saying he thinks that those kids are really a serious risk. He doesn't want to see them on the streets. They've got to be schooled, but he is really concerned about them being on the streets. And his idea was that they should be segregated in some sort of separate area to be re-socialised because really when you've got, I don't know, 10 or 12-year-olds who've been involved in killing people, then and and now that maybe they feel cheated because their father's gone away and their their holy war has sort of failed it poses a, a serious danger so that's one subgroup of danger to the children there's a lot of psychological damage to children in syria and and that's probably the the worst of it what about the the mothers of the children tim well they've been until fairly recently they were in shelters provided by the government um but when i was there last month i believe that a number of them were going back to their homes in the East Guta. So it's, uh, the whole question is still up in the air, basically. The, the citizenship of their children is up in the air. And the question of whether there's some special school that's required is still up in the air too. So these women wouldn't have voluntarily gone with these men? Well, they stayed behind, clearly. Some of the families did go to Idlib, for example. Some of their husbands are dead also. But um, and quite a number of them went to Idlib. Were some of these children being born as a result of rape? Possibly, but you know, I think I mentioned before that um, they forcibly took wives in in many places. They had multiple wives too, you know. So the, the nature of the relationship in these sorts of groups, where they enforce a reign of terror effectively over people, you know. So. People undoubtedly were coerced into, including girls, a number of them are very young, like teenagers, are coerced. And, and, of course, their parents are coerced into providing the girls for wives or temporary wives for the jihadists. They had their own rationale about wives and temporary wives and multiple wives. And, and indeed, there's a whole sort of philosophy about serving the jihad with sexual services and so on, you know. So they have their own way of coercing people into relationships and... Um, I think I mentioned one of them was the 41st wife of one of these uh, emirs, the princes that was leading one of the Islamist groups. You know, so they're not normal relationships, let's say. One country you haven't mentioned is Israel. Yeah. So Israel, of course, has been involved in this war. It tried to uh, hide its involvement, but uh, more recently we've had a number of admissions from Israel that they've been funding and arming up to a dozen armed groups. We knew there was a number of them near the, the frontier with Israel and Syria, but it extends into other parts of the country too. A lot of Israeli ammunition with, with Hebrew writing on it's been found throughout Syria, and they've admitted more than 200 air attacks too in recent times. Of course, 
the most recent one, which led to a significant shift in things in Syria, was the the attack on Latakia. Just as, well, this was why the the Turkish-Russian talks were taking place. It wasn't just that there was a going to be a potential clash between the Syrian forces and their allies and the Turkish army, but also the number of the Western powers, in particular the US, Britain and France and Israel, were ready to attack at the same time. So there was a very, just last month, there was a very tense situation and that was why that um, deal with Russia and Turkey came through to prevent serious escalation and perhaps unpredictable escalation. Nevertheless, even though the Lidlou operation didn't go ahead, Israel decided to attack a number of facilities on the coast, on the Syrian coast, and that Russian plane was shot down in the crossfire, apparently, between Syrian air defence and for the, the attacks by four Israeli F-16 jets. Russia blamed uh, Israel for that, for using their one of their intelligence planes as cover from the Syrian air defence at the time. And then the, the consequence of that was that the Russia has since uh, very rapidly delivered what they said they were going to do for years but didn't, uh, deliver some more sophisticated air defence to the Syrians, which will mean that the Israelis now going to be under much more pressure if they try um, to attack Syria in the future. They'll be at much greater risk of being shot down. So Israel, even though Russia and Israel have a, a fairly close relationship, it's been one of the contradictions of this war, nevertheless they, and, and the Russians have tolerated and tried to protect and mollycoddle and keep the Israelis to one side and not directly engage in the war, but Israel has pushed the, under Netanyahu has pushed the envelope and now the Russians have leaned more to, towards the Syrian side and are providing some more advanced technology. The White Helmets, we haven't heard from them for a while. There's been no small children found in the rubble of buildings, but they're getting their just desserts, some of them, in Britain. What has been obvious to me for a long time, that a PR branch of Al-Qaeda, basically funded by Britain and the US and some other European states, uh, to do the PR stunts for them, they were evacuated from South Syria as the Syrian army was cleaning those armed groups out of the south of Syria. And remember, the Trump administration decided not to continue to help those groups on the on the border with Jordan and Israel. And Israel, as a result, backed off because Israel effectively can't operate in the Middle East region unless it has the backing of a great power, in particular the U.S. So when that was happening, Israel and some of the others decided to evacuate the White Helmets, who were really just the Al Qaeda groups wearing a different hat. I mean, there's some very good online databases now showing dozens and dozens and dozens of these same people on the one hand wearing a white helmet, on the other hand carrying weapons and the flags of the Al-Qaeda groups, the various Al-Qaeda groups. So they, a number of them were evacuated, several hundred and their families were evacuated from South Syria. They are still in Idlib. They were the ones centrally involved in planning a new false flag chemical weapons stunt to try and justify more NATO attacks on Syria. But I think, as you mentioned there, a number of them, I saw something a figure of something like about 100, have been given uh, asylum in Britain. I think it's like two dozen or three dozen of the White Helmets and then their families making up to more than 100 people. As I said, the evidence is very strong that these people are deeply integrated into al-Qaeda groups. Uh, Britain, for its own, you know, for better or for worse, have decided to 
accept a number of these people who've been carrying out havoc and murder throughout Syria for a number of years. The implications that has for the people in Britain is pretty frightening, if you ask me, because once they set loose this sort of chain of very large-scale armed terrorist groups that are engaged in fanatical murder of civilians, even for their religious beliefs or their political affiliations, you can't really turn that off. It's not so easy to turn that off when you've given the freedom to these people to fanatically murder Syrian civilians and then you move them to Germany or you move them to Britain. You can't, just because they've been operating politically in alliance with those governments doesn't mean to say they're not going to be loose cannons and a great danger to those societies. And I think security forces in a number of Western countries realised that early on, as far ago as five years ago when the Australian government started to arrest some of the jihadists um, returning home or heading out towards Syria, for example. I'm afraid that this decision by the British is going to cause some further problems. We already had a serious attack in Manchester, I think it was, during a concert, and it turns out that the young man responsible for that was uh, precisely in the same sort of groups that had been backed by Britain in Libya. And his family was um, became extremists as a result of that uh, operation against the Libyan government. I mean, I'm afraid that it looks like the British government is inviting further uh, incidents in Britain. You participated in two seminars in the propaganda wars in both Damascus and Beirut. Just first, could you just tell what life is like in Damascus? Well, Damascus is... I was there a year ago and I've been there regularly for the last five years, but compared to last year when there was still the significant presence of the armed groups in, in the East Ghouta, things are much more peaceful. There was regular... There were regular bombings um, and mortar attacks on the east part of the old city in particular from the East Ghouta last year. And this year, nothing. Uh, very, very, very peaceful. I mean, Damascus itself has escaped, the old city in particular has escaped the damage that happened in some other parts, like Aleppo City, for example. But there were a large number of people, or constant stream of people being injured and killed by these bombings in the east part of Damascus and that's all gone now Damascus itself is really relatively safe basically there are no real incidents happening in Damascus and even though there's this um, uneasy sort of process where there is still heavy policing and surveillance of the East Ghouta because of the sleeper cells and the reconstruction that's going on and so on but in Damascus city itself which is an amazing city really I mean the history and the architecture and uh, of Damascus is, is extraordinary it's one of the, the wonders of the world really it's it's largely escaped in an architectural sense um, the damage of that war so Damascus is uh, has been returning to life for a number of years because people did get used to the war and, and, and the, the semi-regular terrorist attacks in Damascus but it's a much more peaceful place now indeed most of the country is pretty peaceful, except Idlib and those parts where the U.S. is still occupying on the southern border and in the in the east with some some proxy groups still in the east of Syria. And where was the seminar? Myself and some colleagues, um, some academic colleagues, held two seminars. One was in the National Library in Damascus, in the Hafez al-Assad Library, and we got the participation of the presidential advisor, Dr. Butana Shaban, to talk there. The British investigative journalist Vanessa Bealey and myself, we, we spoke to an audience of about 200. It was televised. 
on the propaganda wars, on precisely the challenges of the propaganda wars or the challenges of fourth generation war, which is less conventional military confrontation and much more the use of psychological operations, propaganda, proxy armies, terrorist groups and so on, that type of war. The Bolivian president spoke of it recently, this fourth generation war, which is really heavily reliant on, on psychological warfare. So we spoke, three of us spoke about that and then we had a similar one at Ma'aref University in the south of Beirut with um, myself and some academic uh, Mawa Osman from RF University and Ms. Zainab Al-Safa, who's one of the main anchors on Al-Maida in television stations. So, and, and that was much more of an academic audience, academic and, and media professional audience there. And once again, the, the media, including Al-Maida, were involved in, in that. So my idea with that was to try and get, and they were basically to Arab-speaking, Arabic-speaking audiences through the use of dual language presentations and, and interpreting and some presentations simply in Arabic to try and get young educated groups in there thinking about the methods of the propaganda war and how to counter the propaganda war, basically. Did you achieve that? <laughs> well, it was a contribution, you know, just to... Of course, there's interest there, but um, a lot of what I do has been aimed at English-speaking audiences in the Western world because of the sort of de-education that's been going on during these long eight wars really of the of the 21st century, eight Middle Eastern wars of the 21st century, which people have been lulled into thinking are not really wars but are civil wars or are peaceful protests being repressed by brutal dictatorships and so on. And they haven't really understood very well that process. Of course, in the, in the Arabic-speaking world, it's a different sort of understanding. They understand that wars are going on. They're identifying who they think is responsible for it. But their engagement in it has been sort of a little bit sporadic in the sense that the international media arms of countries like Syria are not very well developed, frankly. You've got Iran with a big media operation. You've got Russia with a big media operation. So there's, there's, something to be, there's something to be gained through fomenting this discussion about how propaganda wars are processing and how they're... Like, for example, here we've got Facebook now is engaged with three US-funded groups that are trying to eliminate fake news, but effectively they're US-funded groups presenting their view of the world. So it's a new reality for us all around the world, and that reality is a little bit different, depending on what culture you're in. You said eight wars, Tim. Which is the eighth? Well, I believe the eighth is Iran, because since the serious terrorist attacks on Iran over the last 12 months, which are coming from the same sources, basically, they're the Saudis of funded Daesh ISIS type attacks on Iran and the more recent one is from a, a type of um, from the southern Arabic speaking community in Iran which the US has got one of its front groups the MEK which used to be a, a Marxist group that's really become a, a client to the US in recent times they've removed the terrorist tag on it they've tried to claim responsibility for an Arab separatist group in the south of Iran which attacked a military parade just recently because the US is openly supporting the MEK and the Saudis have been backing these ISIS type groups in Iran I think you can say that there's a proxy war has already begun against Iran and that was threatening a large scale war back in I remember 2010 eight years ago and then, then we had the nuclear agreement then the US tore up that nuclear agreement so the 
uh, the economic war began against against Iran and uh, with the Trump administration, and now we've got a terrorist war beginning again against Iran. So really, to understand this situation, people have to look more and more at the region and the links between these wars, the links between the, the open invasions of the Bush administration and the, the proxy wars of the Obama administration, which have been carried on by the Trump administration. It's, it's shocking to think that people understand so poorly that these eight wars are somehow due to some independent indigenous uh, factors going on in the political systems of those countries. There's a big process going on, a big plan going on in the region. It's a failing plan, but it's a very dangerous plan, and there's still huge risks of escalation. The situation in Syria shows us that. The situation with Israel's obsession with Iran shows us that too. And Dr Tim Anderson from Sydney University completes the program for this week. I'll be back at 4 o'clock next week. Bye for now.